It's episode 102 of Dive in the Podcast with special guest Tammy Hagerman. Dive in the Podcast is an all about diving podcast for everyone. Whether you explore the oceans as a snorkeler, scuba diver, free diver, or tech diver, Dive in has something for you. The show is filled with diving news, feature interviews with guests from around the world, interesting dive topics, and ocean advocacy. Visit DiveInPod.com to find out about the show, past guests, and our Patreon. Hi, everyone. I'm Amit. I'm April. I'm Justin. And we're the hosts of Dive In The Podcast. Before we get started today, I'd like to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in every week. Your support encourages us to keep going and make a bigger and better podcast. If you enjoy listening to the show, you can leave us a review on your podcast app or at podchaser.com. Reviews are one of the best ways to help others find the podcast. Last week, we had Pete Mesley on the podcast, finally got his wrap-up done, uh, the second episode of uh, his two-parter. It was uh, was a good episode, a little break there with our episode 100 in between, but uh, yeah, we got that that all done, and it was a good talk with him. Yeah, he was awesome. I... uh... I'm so inspired by him. And now that uh, between, I mean, I guess behind the scenes, we like record episodes and then they come out. And even though that was like a two-part or episode, mm-hmm. it's recorded in one big chunk. Um, yeah. So anyways, just between the time of recording, editing, chunks coming out, episodes, special in between, whatever, uh, Blackbeards was in there. And then I was just like, man, I should start running luxury dive vacations. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then, you know, you, you go on a, I mean, not that Blackbeards is luxury, but, you know, it's a dive vacation and you get a little mm-hmm. taste for it. And uh, actually just today I was talking about Pete uh, to my dad and I was like, man, I got to figure out how to be uh, Pete and be running sweet, sweet dive trips all year round. And uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, you're well positioned for it, that's for sure. So, I mean, if anybody can make it happen, I would put it on you, April. I still haven't actually had the uh, the wherewithal to go listen. I'm still dealing with the <laughs> depression of not having gotten a chance to talk to Pete Mesley. Um, mm. And so I'm really sad about that. But yeah, now that both episodes are out, I think I'm going to do a behind-the-scenes listen to those three in a row and see how it, it kind right. of pieces itself together. So can finally get to know the Pete that I never got to speak to. Uh. <laughs> He'd probably do a private session with you. He <laughs> is, uh, very friendly and happy to chat. So I bet you could just call him up and, yeah, you know, yeah. do an episode special yourself. Yeah, I think that'd just be a little awkward. But uh, you never know. You never know. He, he might He might humor me, right? It's one of those ones where I want to talk That's to you. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> No, the yeah, you should definitely give him a call. Uh, and speaking of giving people calls tonight on the podcast, we're speaking to Tammy Hagerman. Uh, we're going to talk to her about all sorts of stuff, including uh, her life and growing up in South Africa, evolution of like getting over from South Africa to the Bahamas to get on Blackbeards, and uh, being a female captain. Was like being a female in the in not just the dive industry, but like the uh, the boat captain industry, if you will. Uh, Tammy is a South African-born scuba instructor who has followed her passions for adventure and diving and turned it into a career. She's the captain of the All-Star Livivores Cat Flu, and she joins us this week on Dive in the Podcast just after the news. Of course, we're not calling it the news anymore. Listeners of the podcast would know that we usually say it's time for the news, but uh, we've we've changed the news uh, the news segment 
we've changed the name of it. Just called in case you missed it now, because uh, uh, news is uh, news is timely. So in case you missed okay. it, we have this for you. And uh, news is depressing. In case you <laughs> news is depressing. It can be well, I can't say <laughs> this <laughs> no, is going to be any this better. Is a bad uh, Never mind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you know, uh, in case you missed it, free diving grapples with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, the tragic consequences of Russian invasion of Ukraine has affected the sports world regarding the roles of Russians and Belarusians. Uh, athletes who participate in global sports as the world moves to sanction Russia, international bodies from the IOC to the UEFA to FIFA, FIFA, uh, have made recommendations to athletes from these countries be banned from events as a consequence of Russia and Belarus's action. Freediving is a competitive sport that is governed by two main bodies, ADA International and CMOS. Uh, divisions of divisions have arisen in the freediving world whether russian athletes should be banned from the future of freediving competition on march 1st president of the ukrainian federation of sport and underwater activities wrote a letter to the secretary secretary general of cmos requesting that russian athletes be banned from cmos sports cmos administers more than just freediving so there's a bunch of other sports as well and it also requested among other things cmos quote condemn the barbaric actions of the russian army in our territory and quote also request, among other things, uh, to remove Russian representatives from the CMOS committees, terminate sponsorship contracts, broadcasting rights, or revoke all instructor statuses of Russian citizens. On March 2nd, ADA uh, International recommended ban on athletes, largely in line with the recommendations from the Olympic Committee, put that vote to individual country ADA nationals. So, uh, yeah, I actually got an email from ADA because I'm a member of ADA Canada, and they uh, asked me to vote on whether, uh, to, I think, two questions, whether Russian should be banned from uh, participating, and I think it was uh, there was another question there, too. So I, I, I saw that connected to that personally, which was wild. These requests to the leading freediving bodies come at a time when the world moves to condemn and isolate Russia from its actions. It once again... Uh, raises long-standing debates whether athletes should be punished for the actions of their countries or if they are separate from kind of uh, kind of something to think about um mm -hmm. you know some of the best free divers in the world are russian mm -hmm. so it's hard yeah the I huge mean, you thing see mcdonald's closing in russia right now and yeah. you know we're pulling russian vodka off our shelves and i don't know it's a tricky world yeah that we're I, uh, in right now I know. I uh, yeah. I see. I see that work too. It's weird. It's uh, it's interesting. Anyway, um, yeah. Thing. Now that you're all caught up, it's time to dive in with Tammy Hagerman. So, Tammy, where are you from? Hi. Um, I'm from South Africa, a small little town on the coast called Petzenberg Bay. Yeah, I grew up there since I was oh, nice. five, and uh, just by the ocean, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Sounds wonderful. And uh, what was your first memory of the water, Tammy? <laughs> um, I was a little girl, and um, we grew up by the beach. So um, the family, pretty much every time we could, when the family and the cousins came down, we'd always go to the beach. My first memory is making uh, little sand castles and burying my cousin in the sand. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah, burying him in the sand and taking turns to bury each other. And then when we got home, my mom got a little mad because we put sand all over the bath. <laughs> you take off your swimsuit and there's just sand everywhere. I thought it was the funniest thing. <laughs> yeah, I, I've always loved the ocean. Um, 
the, the ocean has pretty much been a, a big part of my life uh, when it came to um, growing up. It was always my safety place, my happy place to go to and just think and enjoy the water, walk on the beach. And that's pretty much the hometown where I grew up with. A beautiful, beautiful small town called Glenburg Bay. <laughs> mm. uh, that's that's very cool. So now you you mentioned having family around and while you guys were there and, and being close to the beach. Tell us a little bit about your family and what growing up in South Africa was like. Uh, South Africa is a very diverse and uh, happy country for the most part. People are very friendly there. Um, I grew up um, in a large household, pretty much from what I understand uh, after traveling a bit. Um, I grew up with my grandparents in our house as well. Um, the, I was raised on the coast uh, in the house that my great-grandmother bought in the 70s. Um, it was actually the holiday house for the family. And then when I was five, we moved down to the coast and took over the holiday house. And um, we lived there and took, looked after it. And then my grandparents moved down soon after that. Um, so what that meant for me was I could see my cousins every vacation because <laughs> they'd come down to the holiday house, <laughs> um, which was a lot of fun. Um, so I got to see them a lot and spend a lot of time. At any given time, we'd have eight to ten people in the house. Uh, the house was... The house is still, um, it's, uh, it's called Milby, and um, it was, it still is a beautiful place to go. And even when I'm not there, my friends that are traveling as well will stop by and say hi to their other mom and dad. <laughs> so it's a very open home we grew up in. Yeah, um, right. wow. yeah we've always had dogs and uh, families. So being around people and uh, living in large groups is always be normal you know when things go quiet and you're like oh what's going on what broke <laughs> i went to school in uh, plet as well um so uh, primary school plettenberg bay primary school you could literally hear the seagulls and the beach on a really rough windy day um, the school was a big part of uh, my love for the ocean because even on some of our breaks we'd sometimes take walk down to the beach into the lagoon area and come back and a very big lawn area with big big fields and grounds where you could always go out and play so yeah it was a it was a beautiful town to grow up in and i often look back and wonder how my mom and dad made it work because <laughs> it's a it's a touristy town but you don't you don't really live there you survive there kind of thing because it's a quality of life rather than the quantity um so that was always i was very very blessed to be able to grow up in such a stunning town that sounds the picture that you paint is uh, is very cool. So I, I asked this question because it always gets asked of me when everybody everybody finds out that I'm from away. So uh, do you happen to know Dion Jones? Because I mean, he's from South Africa. That's <laughs> <laughs> one of my favorite ones. It's like, pick random South Africans. Like, yeah, sure, you know this guy. He's like, yeah, no, <laughs> probably not. <laughs> um, no. <laughs> I'm more likely to know Elon Musk than anyone else. Let's be serious. Nice. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, he's a good friend of ours. Uh, and, yeah, dive buddy, diver extraordinaire, and he he happens to hail from South Africa as well. So we had to confirm that you you did or didn't know Dion. So <laughs> it was a fifty fifty shot. I mean, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Either you did or didn't. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, what led you to scuba diving, Tammy? Oh, uh, that was an interesting journey. Um, 
it was kind of unexpected. So um, <laughs> when I was 13, um, we were I was in grade seven, which is pretty much the end of your primary school year in South Africa. And I had this amazing English teacher, Miss Evans, Miss um, Lynn Evans. And she said to us, if we won class of the year, and she would take us for a scuba diving session at the pool, you know. So, in other words, you win out of the whole school. You win class of the year. You do. You raise the most money for the school. You do. You behave yourself as well. You don't get any demotion points or anything like that back then. <laughs> um, all those good things. Um, then she would take us for a scuba dive because she was a dive master at the local dive center, which is called Pro Dive, and she used to do that on the weekends. So I did that when I was 13, we won class of the year, and I remember wanting to be the last one in the water, um, wanting to be the last one in the water, and I was with two of my other friends and Miss Evans, and I thought it was the coolest experience, breathing at the bottom of a pool, and there was so much bubbles, and you felt so free and light, and we pretty much blew out the tags, we could stay, stay down there as long as we could, <laughs> and I really, really loved it. Um, and then after that, I couldn't figure out how or to get into the sport because it was a really expensive sport and I was very much into hockey, uh, field hockey at the time. So I focused more on that. And then when I was about 17, one of my best friends, his name is Carl Portreter, he was an instructor at the dive center and he used the last of his money to buy me a Discover Scuba Diver and take me on a dive, right? through the dive center and rent the gear for me. He paid for everything, right? And um, he took me on the DSD and I never get, it's a shore entry and we're walking and you put your fins on and all this kind of things. So it's like, oh, this is so cool. I finally get to go in the ocean with this. And as we were walking in, I remember descending below the water and feeling really cold, but the viz and everything, it just felt like home. It felt peaceful. But I was gripping his hand for dear life. <laughs> it was really bad for him <laughs> because I was gripping his hand for dear life. Like, I can't lose this guy because otherwise I'll be lost. <laughs> um, and we were swam onto the reef. And as we were swimming onto the reef, we had a bait ball come around us in the shallow water. And I'll never forget, I was hearing these pew, pew, pew sounds. And I looked to my right, and there was this bird underwater Cape Cormorants just sitting there with his mouth full of a fish and it kind of looked at me and I looked at it and then it just swam up and I was like this is so cool I want to do this for the rest of my life <laughs> so that was pretty much my yeah. first dive and I absolutely loved it I loved how much life there was below there and how free it felt and I remember going home back to my family and I'm like dad I want to do this and he was like you know Tam diving is fun you can do it as a sport but you know we have the family business um, you can definitely do that on weekends you know and save up for that kind of stuff I was like no dad I, re I really want to do this <laughs> so I ended up working two jobs um, as a waitress paying for my studies and um, I now new scuba diving habit <laughs> and um after that, I got I spent so much time trying to dive and upgrade and stuff um, that I eventually got the job as the shop girl, uh, you know, the front office girl for the dive center at Pro Dive Plattsburg Bay. And then after that, um, I basically did more my courses through the dive center, um, all the way up to instructor. And then I eventually took over as operational manager when that manager left and ran it for two and a half years. So like it was just one thing after the next, but. One of the biggest points in my journey was the kindness of other people. Because scuba diving is not a not a very easy sport to get into, especially when you're young and stuff like that. It costs a lot of money. Um, 
and from my small town it wasn't kind of feasible but when one of my dad's best friends found out that I liked scuba diving he was an old scuba diving instructor in Aoi and uh, his name was Chris Sean he actually rocked up on the doorstep <laughs> with his wife's spare gear dive gear it was an it was a crazy VCD it was bright bright yellow <laughs> and um, he rocked up on the doorstep and he said um, here, Tam, take this gear, go to your dive masters, you need you need gear to be able to do that, and off you go. And I did. And without people like that just showing some kindness and actually, you know, believing in you, I don't think I'd ever be where I am today. Um, so that was pretty cool. I did that, and then I remember being at the dive center as an instructor. No, just before I went for my instructor course, and my <laughs> my boss at the time, Louis Fenard, well-respected in the diving community, he him and Michelle, um, he looked at my dive gear and he's like, why have you got Chrissy dive gear? This is a scuba point dive center. <laughs> I was like, oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> so I ended up having to change all that and he cut me a deal so that I could pay it off over a few months and, and he was like, no no instructor of mine is going to have Chrissy dive gear in my scuba pro shop. <laughs> so that was pretty fun. Yeah, so yeah, a lot of people, you know, being kind and actually seeing that, you know, you want to work and you, you're you're driven and you really enjoy the sport. Um, they've shown me a lot of kindness over the years and it's enabled me to take those little steps that make a difference overall, you know? That's that's pretty cool. And you mentioned though that uh, your dad wanted you to be part of the family business. Uh, what was the what was the family business? Oh, the, the family business is IT. It's actually network administration by trade. Ah. Um, we do point of sale systems, oh. server server integration backbone systems for hotels and restaurants and all that kind of stuff i mean i learned wow. to wire network cables and take soldering take capacitors off motherboards before i could reach the counter <laughs> <laughs> so yeah wow. like literally one of my first memories of my dad's it shop it was in the main road in robert road um was me standing at the counter like on a little stool with a soldering iron and trying to get uh, the capacitor off and my mom walking in on me and she being like, what are you doing? I was like, dad's circuit. And she was like, Charles? <laughs> and then dad was like, oh, she'll only burn herself once. She'll only burn herself once. It'll be fine. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, like, my family was always fire. very supportive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, very much so. Very much so. But that's kind of how it is. My dad would always let us try and my mom was always very, like, kind and encouraging. So you never felt like even if you did fail that it was going to be wrong. You just, you're like, okay, you know, I'm going to try and see if this works. If it doesn't, yeah, try again. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. It sounds like fun. It sounds like it's been an interesting path. But I'm, I'm wondering if there's any, like, uh, particular accomplishments as far as scuba diving goes that you're, uh, that you're proud of in your, uh, in your scuba career. Ooh, well, I'm proud of moments that I've got to share with people. Um, so Dr. Sylvia Earle came to uh, launch the Hope Spots in South Africa when I was managing the dive center in Plattenberg Bay. So we hosted her in Platt and we took her out and diving with her was, that was exceptional. She is like a mermaid underwater. I couldn't believe how comfortable when she hit the water. She was like, you could see she wasn't hurt. So that was probably one of my highlights um, in my career so far. Um, Also working with people like Cape Nature Conservation and seeing how they rehabilitate. I was fortunate. um, One of my dear friends, Monica Taylor and Yako Kruger back home in South Africa, they did a lot of, um, they worked for NSRI, which is actually not a work. They volunteer for them. 
um, which is basically like the South African version of a Coast Guard. And they did a lot of work with the Cape Nature Reserve as well. And seeing how they rehabilitated um, penguins or seal pups and stuff like that was pretty cool over the years. So I saw them. I saw them do it a lot, um, coming in off the boats and stuff. The conservation work. Um, I was only a part of it for one run with the seals, but it was super cool to do um, and see how they do it. Um, there's a lot of nature conservation back home in South Africa. It's actually a big part of the diving industry and the tourist industry is nature conservation. And they're pretty good with the rehabilitation of seals, penguins, anything that's hurt and stuff. Um, it's pretty cool. Um, as far as um, standing out moments, uh, yeah, Dr. Sylvia Earl diving with her was pretty cool. Um, always <laughs> seeing a great white for the first time, that was terrifying. <laughs> um, so the small bay, Tannenberg Bay, um, it has a, a few thousand strong seal colony on the point um just uh, like five kilometers out so you do get juvenile great whites there which is a lot of fun um yeah i've seen them on a dive or two i remember the first time i saw that i i definitely did not enjoy that because you're not mentally prepared to see such a magnificent beast on the water that's bigger than you in shallow water and it's inquisitive <laughs> so that was a pretty cool experience um i also got to dive with them in guadalupe um, with the Fins Attached group and on their inaugural trip for their vessel. Um, that was pretty cool, diving with Dr. Um, Mauricio. Um, so that was fun. Uh, I learned a lot about the Great Whites on that trip. Um, yeah, we were pretty much the integration um, between the guests and the dive crew, just making sure they understand how to provide the service for the guests and uh, kind of a seamless integration, like, okay, guys, we're going to go dive now. Okay, it's eat time now, you know, that kind of thing. That was probably back in 2018. We did that trip. Um, what else? Yeah, diving in the Bahamas has been very rewarding as well. Funny enough, COVID has actually allowed me some opportunity to explore a lot of the islands. Um, I did a, a coral restoration program with the PIMS, um, which is the local Nassau guys, um, the university here. They basically do reef restoration um, in the Bahamas with Elkhorn and Staghorn. And that was an exceptional experience. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. we actually went down and they taught us how to transplant them from the nurseries onto the coral, track them, the numbers, and and put that data back to a research scientist. That was, I did a two-week plan of that. That went all the way up to Abaco um, twice. So that was a lot of fun. Um, what else? Yeah, research trip was pretty cool. And also, like, the Bahamas has got a lot of variety in, in dives, even in Lake Zumas and Eleuthera, shallow sharks, not sharks kind of thing. Like, I've had some pretty exceptional dives out here. Sounds amazing. I know you told the story earlier about your dad's friend uh, dropping off all the gear at your house and then you went and did your dive master. But was there a moment when you knew like, this is what I want to do, I want to be a dive professional? Or was it that that made you jump into it? Well, um, it was it was the moment swimming with that Cape Cormorant with the, with, the, with the fish next to my head. I was like, with it, like it had the fish in its mouth. And it was just like looking at me and I'm like, this is marine life at its finest. I'm swimming in a bait ball underwater and there was a bird next to me. <laughs> like, let's just duck dive in. Because I couldn't understand what the sounds were. Because you just hear the pew, 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 like, yeah. you know, as they hit the water. And then when I saw that, I was like, wow, this is this is pretty cool. Um, I'm Working at that dive center, I got to meet a lot of amazing people. 
actually one of the people that got me out to the Bahamas, it was actually a couple at the time, um, Tom Hodgkiss and Kalula Brigham. They were one of my dear, dear friends. I actually had her job. I was, she was shop girl before me. And then she put me up for that job when I, when I went to do, learn how to dive and all that kind of stuff. So it's funny how that works. <laughs> and then they came over to the Bahamas. Um, Tom came and worked for Aquacat and Blackbeard's mm-hmm. Cruises. And he eventually was a relief captain and um, engineer as well um, for the vessels. And he was, he came back after his first break in the Bahamas, right? He came out for a few months then he went back home to South Africa he rocked up on the house <laughs> and gave me his steel tanks as well, which are also expensive. But uh, he gave me his uh, steel tanks. He's like, Tam, these are yours. I'm not going to use them. I'm going back to the Bahamas. And he's like, if you ever, ever get bored of South Africa and you want to travel, I'll be your reference. I was like, what? Really? <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, Kalula at the time, she was all pairing. And then she also went out to the Bahamas and she was one of the cooks for a number of years. And, um, Eventually, I was like, hey, guys, I'm ready to come. Is the office still there after, like, two and a half years? And they're like, of course. And I applied for the job. And then three months later, I got a call from Mark Bailey, um, the president of the company, my boss. And he was like, hey, so uh, when can you start? I was like, when do you need me? He was like, three weeks. And I was like, cool. And the funny part is (laughs) I literally just packed up and I left. Like, I I said goodbye to my family, my friends. And it was one of those things for me where I didn't want to be Charles and Moore's daughter because the small town syndrome, you know, like everyone knows that you're Charles and Moore's daughter. You're not actually mm. Tammy. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to go see if I can actually do this for myself somewhere else. And I left. I didn't tell anyone I was leaving. I didn't even tell some of my friends. I just wanted a fresh, clean start on my own. And I came out to the Bahamas. Tom and Luna actually paid for my flight ticket out. So I had no choice but to make it work. <laughs> and um, yeah, I came to the Bahamas with pretty much 10 bucks to my name. And the first person I met was um, a lovely lady, Megs. Um, she w- was running Windermere at the time. And Megs, um, I'll never forget, I was absolutely terrified. Two days of traveling to get to the Bahamas. I had no idea how far away it was from South Africa. <laughs> and I got to the Bahamas and I walked into the spa <laughs> that Kalula had left. Kalula had left money and a room key for me and a SIM card with this lady called Megan. Or we call her Megs. And... Um, I was like, hi, I'm looking for Megs. And she walks out and she's just like this little ray of sunshine. I'm like, oh, I can see why she's friends with Kaluna. <laughs> and it was lovely. And we just got on really well. <laughs> and I'm still friends with her to this day. We still keep chatting, keep up every now and again. And um, yeah, she showed me around the Bahamas. She showed me where the store was, where the, where the um, hotel I was going to be staying at, where the boats were docked. And it was like a breath of fresh air. I was like, okay, I can do this. And yeah, that Friday, I arrived on the Wednesday, and then I started work August 23rd, 2015, nearly six and a half, yeah, six and a half years ago now. Nice. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm super interested to hear more about uh, working as, a, you know, on the boats and all that. But I want to, before we get too far away from South Africa, uh, I, I just want to know, like, is there... Um, Anything that you think is like a must do for people heading to South Africa to go diving or, you know, must dive locations or anything like that? It depends what kind of diving you want. Um, If you're looking, so the African coastline Mm -hmm. is beautiful and varied and she's a volatile creature. Like, oh, she's lovely. So in South Africa, in in Simonstown, Hermanus, that area, you've got Pisces divers that does a seven gill cow shark dive, which is Technic, and then it's in a kelp forest, which is pretty cool. 
um, which is technically one of the oldest prehistoric genetically modified genetics sharks in the world that you could still dive with. Um, so that's a pretty cool dive. Very cold water though, so prepare to get your breath taken away. Not really. Some people even do semi dries down there. Um, <laughs> and then from there, if you go up the coastline, I I love Pettenberg Bay for the nudibranchs. Like there was this one little reef, which we as instructors would, if we had to guide people there, you'd, you'd have a almost like a challenge to see how many nudibranchs you could get. And me and my friend Ulrika, I think the one time we got nine different species of nudibranchs on one little reef. It was it, it was wow. beautiful. It was one of those dives wow. where you just go down. You go with the flow, like the swell as the swells come through, and you just watch and enjoy the side. It's very colorful, but low vis. Five mil wetsuits are generally fine. Maybe hoodie and gloves if you get really cold. And that's in Plet. Um, Plet is Plet is like a little oasis. It can be either very, very low vis or very, very good vis. But the reefs itself are very colorful and bright compared to the rest of diving I've done. And then as you go up Port Elizabeth uh, with ProDive there, they have some really good diving, like Evans Peak is a great wow. dive site. Bowboy is huh? an awesome dive site. Bowboy, um, they have the waggies there. So you sit in the, they're sitting in those channels almost. And um, as you go up and down the channels, if you, if you go really slowly and you come up behind a raggy that's sleeping in the channel, you'll hear this whoop sound of it, like, bam, and it will literally reverberate through your chest. Their, their tails, mm-hmm. they get such a fright, and they just whip off. And off oh, they go. Wow. Um, and then if you go up the coast from there, you go to like Aliwal Shoal and Coral Divers. Those are some good diving. I take at least three to four days diving there. I'm drift diving with some cool sharks. Um, if you go the right time of year, like January, February, they've got the leatherback turtles there, which is definitely a must-do. They are huge, 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 huge. Um, so you can oh, stay wow. at coral divers. It's like a yeah. sanctuary. It's in a nature reserve. And the leatherback turtles in like January, February actually mm-hmm. nest. And you can take midnight tours with um, obviously certified people. So they don't drive over the eggs and stuff, and you can actually go see them as the hatchlings hatch and go into the ocean. And it's one of the few places that the leatherbacks can, are still actually hatching and all that kind of stuff, which is pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, that sounds incredible. Uh, I had I got lucky and I uh, got to do that in Tobago one time with the uh, the hatching leatherbacks, and uh, yeah, it, it was a super memorable thing. I don't think I'll ever forget that, and it it made me want to think that. I should have probably followed those ideas of being a marine biologist and, you know, <laughs> and done some work that's worthwhile. So uh, I can see where you're coming from in that regard. So I wanted to now take us back because you, so back to the Bahamas, I say, because you, you painted a very, a very uh, movie like picture for us, right? Like, you know, you were like, I, I got this invitation. I, I left in the middle of the night. I stole off and nobody knew I was going to the Bahamas. Well, they, that's because everyone thought I ran off with, and I was pregnant or something. They also like you should have heard the stories going around town. They're like, oh, she had a baby, and she ran off with that guy, got married, or she's hiding out at the house. And I was like, what? <laughs> you know, I'm on a boat in the Bahamas. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So that now, so so that is a very romantic piece, despite all the uh, you know the rumor mill stuff that's going on. And many of us, I think, have this. I think even for us, April and I just came off of one of the Blackbeard's uh, boats. It wasn't yours, unfortunately, but uh, we have this romanticized version of, of working on a liverboard. And you know, obviously, you guys do an amazing job of hiding the the real work from us, the guests. 
So can you can you tell us a bit about what life is actually like for you as and, and what it was like for you as you progressed through those various ranks that you would have gone through from the time that you, you know, first started to say say bring us to your position as a first mate? So it's been a <laughs> it's been a wonderful journey of um, of growing and uh, <laughs> exploring. You learn a lot about yourself out here. It's not an easy job. It's not for everyone. It's one of those things where you, if you like to work hard and play hard, this is the place to do it. You know, when you get work six weeks on, was two weeks off. So it's almost like taking all your weekends and compacting them in a two week break. Um, when I started in the company, <laughs> my first time on the on the Mighty Sea Explorer, I was like on that boat for three weeks, and I walked on board. And Captain Mark uh, introduced me to my first mate, uh, Chris Robinson, <laughs> and he was the first mate at the time, and he was busy taking apart um, a marine head, right? One of the old ones that you had to put your foot down and push real hard back and forth the pedals, and they had plugged it while they were on charter, and he was sitting there with his mm-hmm. plugged head, gloves on, and his boss just walked on the boat and said, <laughs> here's a new kid. Bit of trainer, and I was just like, "Oh, this guy's having a bad day." <laughs> and so he looked at me. I was like, "Great, cool, yeah, clean this." And I was like, "What is this?" He's like, "I'll tell you later." <laughs> and come to find out, it's a marine head. Um, so, uh, it was it was a journey. I mean, you you come. It's a wonderful sense of humor out here. You know, it's it's sometimes there's drama. You know, uh, it's like high school. It can be. I mean, below decks ain't got nothing. What happens out here? <laughs> <laughs> right um but work wise you're able to meet like 20 new different people every week and you get to go diving in upwards of 40 different dive sites depending on where we go in the chain of islands for the for the um for the week and the weather and when i started in the company i really loved that i loved engaging with the different dive groups and then as i grew as a dive master i loved seeing them come back and then walking down the dock and being like Hey, Bubbles, like, <laughs> they called me Bubbles, this one group, the Valkyries, they're a veterans group uh, that do wounded warrior projects and rehabilitations, and for their entire group, I'm called Bubbles, mm-hmm. like, and I know it's one of them when they walk down the dock, because at the end of all my briefings, I always go, let's go blow some bubbles, <laughs> uh, so that's a lot of fun, is seeing those okay. groups come back. Um, and then from there, as a dive master, I used to uh, break a lot of things, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> and then I used to ask the engineers, how do I fix them? And that was fun too. <laughs> um, so then after handing enough tools, I asked, how can I fix them as well? And um, yeah, and then they allowed me the opportunity to start as an engineer as well. I went and got my AEC. Um, I did an engineering course in Fort Lauderdale, just the basic entry-level approved engineering course with uh, PYT and MPT that's based there. And um, after that, I really enjoyed getting out the sun and enjoying the AC or I fix something that's broken, right? <laughs> that worked pretty well. Um, I learned about watermaker systems, diesel engines. I went. I also went and did a compressor course with my boss, Mark, and it taught me how to basic maintenance of power compressors, which was fun. And then after that, I was like, you know, what next? And Mark looked at me and he's like, well, you know, we need first mates in the company. And I was like, okay, let's try this. Um so uh, one of the first things I actually fixed as an engineer, though, was a seawater pump on a gen, uh, 4JG1 Isuzu. And um, I'll never forget, they have this photo of me actually online of me coming out the gen space looking absolutely happy, covered in grease, with my hair going everywhere and a headlamp on. And I was so happy I changed the seawater pump out so that the engine could now work and cool. And um, 
at that point, I knew I liked engineering more than I liked people. <laughs> it, was, it was great. <laughs> um, it was cool because, like, engines and stuff, they either work or they don't. There's no, like, you know, emotions and stuff like that. But being a dive master, I was hmm. so used to dealing with people's emotions and getting them over their fear of sharks and stuff. I was like, oh, this is a different change of doing things in a boat. And I can still be at sea. And I can still go diving, but now I get to fix things. So that was a cool integration. Um, oh, the engines have started. Uh, and then from there, we I integrated from there onto... <laughs> I went from there onto... Um, Engineering-wise, I went to get my captain's license in P1 T, and after that, I ended up doing um, first mate role and learning underneath uh, Captain Breezy, um, who was one of my mentors, and obviously Captain Red, um, whose real name is Michael Salmon. But Captain Red was a large part of my upbringing and actual learning in past the company and how I grew. He actually gave me a lot of opportunity, and then he gave me the nod to do something you knew you were able to do it, which was pretty cool. Um, he, like, believed in you, and he would never, ever set you up to fail. He would always set you up to win. And he was a big mentor in my life out here, and I spent four years on the Morningstar with him. And two of those years were with uh, Captain Breezy as well, as my first mate, while I was engineer. So that was a lot of fun. Sorry, they started the engines now. <laughs> For the listeners, uh, we probably haven't talked about this on the sh- on the show, uh, you're actually out at sea right now and uh, out on the boat. So just give us a quick rundown of like where what's what's going on. Yeah, we're currently uh, just moving for the evening. Uh, we're heading back. Um, we've just finished our night dive and stuff like that, so we're all settled, and we're going to be heading to um, sleep spot now. Um, so hopefully, I'm hoping the signal stays with us. <laughs> um, but yes, uh, we're just having it on on a dive trip, dive charter here in Zoomers. Cool. That's pretty amazing. Your first. Uh, Pretty sure you're uh, you're our first interview in uh, 102 episodes that's uh, been live from uh, out in the uh, ocean somewhere. So let's go. You're number one. Uh, it's kind of funny too because me and Amit joked that when we were on Blackbeards, we were going to record from sea, and we were like, "Ha ha ha!" We'll now you can do sea. it. And now, like, here we are, two weeks yeah. later, and you're recording from sea. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, so so timely question. Uh, what factors do you think make for a successful liveaboard experience for guests? Oh, uh, just understanding their expectations at the beginning of the week. Um, understanding exactly what they want to do. You know, what mm-hmm. kind of trip they've been sold, whether they're diving or activities, makes a large part of that experience. So when we board the guests, while they might be a bit shy on the Saturday. It's very, very important for them to communicate like, hey, I saw this. Is it a possibility to do this? And if it's weather conditions permitting, you know, we try and make it happen for the guests because it's their vacation and a lot of times they've saved it for an entire year to be out yet. And you want to give them the best vacation possible. And uh, one of the cool things about that is as a captain, being able to work under so many different captains over the years, like Captain Red, who's an absolute legend, been here for 18 years. You have Captain Breezy, who worked up the way. Chris Lawrenson, who was one of my main mentors, especially with engineering. Um, you have Jim, who is excellent at keeping the boats running as well. And especially Captain Mark. He was um, integral in understanding group dynamics of guests and offering them the best possible trip. Um, 
if you when you learn different approaches from so many people, it allows you to understand the people that come on board, whether they're from Canada, whether they're from the US, Texas, the South, New York. You kind of enter, you handle them differently than you would just straight up at the same time because you try to make them the most comfortable that they can be on a boat in a strange environment, which is literally a dive center, a hotel, and a restaurant at sea. So <laughs> you try and make sure that you provide everything you can for them in a happy way that makes them want to come back as well as have a good time at sea. It makes it, it makes a memorable experience for them. That's, mm. that's awesome. Is that, that's got to be challenging on occasion uh, in small spaces, though. Yeah, so small spaces, especially on the Blackbeard's boats, that was always fun. It becomes quite a camaraderie with the get with the crew. You know, they become like your family. And there's even crew that I still now go visit. Like one of my first chefs, her name is Clancy T. Meyer, and uh, Wade, Wade Cover. He was the engineer for Capital and she was the cook for the Morningstar and when I first started in the company. And now they've settled up um, in Fort Lauderdale, have a house, doing, you know, the nine to five job. And there's some of my best friends. Like, even when I go on vacation, I'll still go stay by them and see them. Same with Breezy and Chris. Like, you make friends because of the close quarters. It's like friends have become family, you know? Um, and there's even like people. <laughs> we had this one dive master. His name was uh, Morgan, <laughs> Morgan Chichester. And uh, we called him Princess because <laughs> he acted right. I so I him. even went and visited him up in Charleston. Um, yeah. And so that was a journey in itself. And with him and Captain Red, and then there was also Justin Morningway. Do you remember him? He was an engineer at the time when I was a first mate. And um, I also trained him to be a dive master. Yeah, and so okay. he's my boyfriend right now, but we met out here on the boats. We reconnected after he left. Um, and so, like, you meet these people that <laughs> you can live with in tight quarters, and you actually like them so much you want to go see them again afterwards, <laughs> which is wonderful. Mm-hmm. And you go through you go through such amazing experiences. Like, I mean, we've been all been through hurricanes together. We've been through the worst possible seas you can imagine, six foot seas, but the sails, full sails are up, and the wind is singing, and you're on a port tack, and Captain Red's going, woohoo, you know? Like... It's, it's those moments that make this life memorable, and I hope to hopefully tell my grandchildren about them one day, because I don't want to tell my kids, because then they think they can do it. <laughs> they give me heart attack when I go That's pretty smart. So, I mean, you meet such amazing people, and living in tight quarters is fine, and if you can do that, then absolutely, it's this kind of trip for you. But I would definitely... Um, Communication. Communication is one of those key aspects of it that you need to keep track of. Um, but yeah, you definitely make friends out here for life. That the friends become family, and it's wonderful. <laughs> like one of the other captains, um, he's yeah. now the captain of Morningstar, uh, Chris Hales. He's actually um, him and I. <laughs> the one time we tried to fix the engine on Morningstar. And I was the first mate, he was the engineer, and it just kept blowing a seal the whole time and kept putting diesel everywhere. And I'll never forget, I've never laughed so much at a man of getting so angry. But when we engineer together, if he gets angry about something, I laugh, and then he's like, tap out, then I'll fix it. And then when I get angry about something, then he'll fix it. It's like, you know, you get these engineering dynamics and <laughs> crew morale that makes it happy. And you kind of want to work together, and you're excited to go to sea. And I guess, 
Saturday is my favorite day of the week because I get to go to see see what happens next. <laughs> Very cool. Nice. So when you guys are on the boat, how do you assess and manage risk uh, with the diving side of things? Because you're, you're always getting new divers and you haven't met them before, so you don't exactly know where their level is at. Um, so new divers, uh, we do a check-in with them and we assess their certification level, when they last dive, how many dives they have, all that kind of stuff. And then after that, what you go through and do is, um, after that's done, you actually offer a fresher course depending on how long they've been diving for, like have they dived in the last year. The company, as a company, we offer them a fresher course on on the boat for that first dive and we do a weight check. And then as well, put the dive master in for the first deep dive of the week to check everyone's skill level, you know, their habits and that kind of thing. Uh, make sure no one goes off the ball. We also do... Um, for the first night dive, because a lot of times we have new guys come out that have never done a night dive before. And then if we do a drift dive, we always have the DM in. They're leading the dive. And then, obviously, the first dive of the week as well. So we have these prerequisites that over the years, the company's been running for 40 years, um, that have time and time again worked really well. And we also just recommend to keep really hydrated when you're out here. So we've got, like, you know, Gatorade mixes, mm-hmm. water, all that kind of stuff to try and make sure that you guys are well fed and hydrated throughout the week. Mm-hmm. We were. I know we were. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not sure that's the hydration. <laughs> Fair enough. I think, I think uh, this last boat trip that we went on, I think we set a record for mm-hmm. day one consumptions, uh, according to Captain oh, Hobby. Really? <laughs> but whole different story right there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. It, you'll yeah. have to ask him about that. <laughs> we but won't we, we won't dwell on that. We definitely won't dwell well, on that. <laughs> but I do know one thing now. The next time I get on the boat, I'm going to actually have to say, when you say the last time you dove, I'll be like, that's easily been a year, <laughs> year and a half for a refresher. Yeah. Could be a break. <laughs> yeah, we offer it as dive monsters. It's one of those things where you're more than welcome to. And that's why we put a dive monster in is to do those refreshes with the guys and get you comfortable and stuff. So it's pretty cool. That's awesome. That's a, that's a good good step to take to help uh, minimize risk there. Good to hear. Um, I think we're going to take a short service interval. We'll be right back with more from Tammy Hagerman. If you'd like to win a dive in the podcast decal and a chance to win an awesome hoodie from us at the end of the year, send us a voice message via our voicemail button at diveinpot.com or via the link in our show notes and answer our favorite guest question what keeps you diving messages must be no longer than 30 seconds long and we'll pick our favorite and play it in the next episode this episode of dive in the podcast is brought to you by torpedo rays scuba you can find them online at torpedorays.com They've been teaching Canada how to dive for 25 years and are a proud sponsor of this podcast. If you're in Atlantic Canada and want to take a course or see the shop, stop in and see us in Dartmouth and check out the huge selection of scuba, apnea, surf gear, and much more. Dive tours are available for locals and visitors to experience all that our ocean playground has to offer. TorpedoRays.com has a vast selection of dive gear at unbeatable prices with free shipping available in Canada and quick shipping throughout North America. So visit TorpedoRays.com or stop in the shop and you might even see one of us there. Welcome back 
to Dive in the Podcast. Uh, it's time to dive back in with our guest, Tammy Hagerman. Tammy is a scuba diver and captain of All-Star Liveaboard's Cap Plow. Uh, Tammy, were your career aspirations all smooth sailing or were there uh, rough waters to navigate, uh, all, all puns intended? And, uh, <laughs> and can you tell us about that uh, journey a little bit? Um, I didn't. <laughs> well, I came out to the Bahamas as a diving instructor, expecting to stay here for six months, maybe a year, and then move on to the next place, like Caymans or Thailand. Mm-hmm. Well, no, I never actually ever wanted to go to Thailand. More like, you know, just carry on traveling yeah. kind of thing. But <laughs> I, I had no yeah. intention of ever becoming a captain until I started engineering. And then I like, I remember looking at my boss the one day, Captain Mark, and I was like, one day, I want to be a captain of one of your boats. And he was like, okay. <laughs> and that was probably about four years ago. <laughs> and I've had a lot of great people who have mentored me and showed me, you know, uh, Tammy, you can't lose your temper in that. Not everyone's going to do it as thoroughly as you want to do it. <laughs> you know? Um, uh, captain Red was a good sounding board, and he was an exceptional person in my life when it came to my maritime career and supporting me as a, as a crew member and working with him at sea was probably and one of my highlights of my life I think will be because he he showed me how to have fun but also be serious in safety but you know do it in such a way that you can still teach people and he was a hard man to work for I mean if you could work for Captain Red you could work for anybody any general <laughs> um, so but he was also a very kind man and very thoughtful and he looked after his crew and he cared for the company so much and he carried that across in his crew members and um, sometimes you'd get frustrated but other times you'd also see that he was right and why he was right later on because he'd like he had this knack of looking at something and be like, hmm, that doesn't sound right. And then now now I've got I've learned what those sounds are after six years. When you like look at something and I go, Oh, that's gonna break, isn't it? <laughs> You're like shit. Um, but yeah, it has not been smooth sailing. I mean, one of the hardest days of my diving career was probably we were in Eleuthera and um, when we were in Eleuthera we ended up with we were doing a shark feed and it was Captain Red looked at this one lady on the dive and he was like, she shouldn't do the next dive. Uh, Have you told her? And I was like, oh, I haven't. I I mentioned to her. He's like, she's looking very tired. And I was like, yeah, she's looking very tired. So I sat down with this lady and she ended up having a diving accident. And the crew rallied really hard on that day and we ended up saving her life. Um, it was probably one of those days where you sit back and you're like, do I really want to do this? <laughs> and, um, but the crew that day was myself, Fred, Justin, Morgan, who's princess, affectionately known, um, and uh, Brian Canaspi and Karen, our chef. And we had a diving incident. It was so bad. We had to pull out the AED and all that kind of stuff. And um, we brought this lady back back with the help of an emergency nurse that was luckily on board as well and I'll never forget the feeling of relief when that woman took another breath and then you stand there and you realize the responsibility you have as a crew member out at sea with all these people and their lives are in your hands and you can only recommend so much safety you know and it's their choice to keep diving but <laughs> push the limits mm-hmm. but that definitely put in perspective the safety at sea 
and how much we were responsible for. So that was uh, an eye-opening one. So smooth sailing? No, not really. I mean, I've been through a few hurricanes like Dorian, uh, Matthew, Irma, all of those big boys that came through the Bahamas. Um, those were learning curves of how to tidy up, tidy up a boat um, into a slip. I'll never forget, Captain Red put out two, two anchors the one time, both the fortress and the Bruce. <laughs> and uh, to secure it, and he tied it around a tree. And we kind of looked at him, like, why are you doing that, Captain Red? He's like, well, if the storm surge is too high, and the line slip off, at least the anchors will work. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's wild. That man could tie a boat down. <laughs> Uh, I wanted to follow up, and, and I don't want to dwell on that because I know it was a it was a very difficult thing you had mentioned uh, in terms of dealing with the uh, with the the lady that had the difficulty. Do you mind if I ask just what was the nature of the accident? And, and I, I don't need you to go into any specific detail. I was just curious because that is pretty significant, yeah. and you know, I mean, to be able to deal with that on a boat out at sea is is pretty. Yeah, she was. Um, she actually had a, an embolism. She came in from the dive, and she had a camera in her hand, and um, she called her camera her baby. She was actually a very experienced diver. Um, like, she discovered wrecks kind of diving. She's been diving 40 years and stuff like that. Um, and she uh, had her baby in her hand, and she came up unresponsive mm-hmm. to the surface. We sent just, Justin jumped in and towed it to the stern of the vessel. And as soon as I Brian took the camera from her, she uh, had an embolism. It's like... You know, like people hang on to hope, and it just—they're just pushing wow. through until they get to that safety net. It was kind of like that when you looked at her, and she was unresponsive. She wasn't answering us. Mm-hmm. As soon as she handed her camera over, she just starfished. She went stuff. She had a tech PC on, and uh, we had to get her out of her gear. We had to cut her out of her gear and um, get her on deck. And that was probably one of the hardest days. At sea, I've ever had, and we—I never forget—we were like one, two, three, hoist, one, two, three, hoist up the ladder, and we hoisted her all the way on deck. And as we put her on the deck, the emergency nurse walked over mm-hmm. and was like, oh, "I got no pulse." And that's when I like, I like looked to Justin, and I was like, "Nope." I was like, "I'm getting a pen and paper." And Justin just went down with Captain Red, and they started CPR on her. And it was probably one of the like most difficult things mm-hmm. to hoist that person up, and you know. And then she wasn't there anymore. You're like, oh boy. And then they got her back. Um, CPR didn't work, so we pulled up the AD. And then after that, um, we got her pulse back and she was good. And we raced back to the marina in Eleuthera, put in a stretcher. And I'll never forget, she always loved my accent. <laughs> so she was, I was like, hey, look at me, look at me. And even when, the, even when the paramedic tried to talk to her, she would always just gravitate towards me. And I was like, oh. It's okay. We'll see you on the other side. I promise. And then she was like, she was golden. As soon as we got her into that paramedic, she it's like light came back in her eyes. She was, she was there again. So a few weeks later, she got the hold of the boat phone number and she phoned Captain Red. She was like, "Hey, Captain Red, I don't remember much of the day, you know, but I just want to say thank you to you and your crew. Um, I really appreciate everything you do. I hear I had like a little embolism and stuff like that. I just can't wait to come diving with you guys again. <laughs> like, you know. <laughs> uh, you gotta be clear for that one. <laughs> so yeah, uh, so she's an avid diver. That's right. But yeah, it was it was definitely one of those heartwarming experiences because we had like apparently a one in nine shot of actually getting her back after an embolism like that, and uh, put her on O2 as well, right in, and 
and we kept it going. Mm-hmm. It was quite cool. Yeah, definitely made us closer as a well, group. I, yeah, well, thank you guys for that. I mean, it goes to show like the level of training and yeah, and how serious you guys take that job because you know, like it is like I think a lot of folks hop on the boat and it's a big party and and everything's going smooth. But I know having had a couple of conversations with you and then a couple of the other crew throughout a couple of trips there, uh, there's a you know. There, there's usually a, pre- a presentation of, of the happy everything's a joke in the face. And, and you guys are incredibly good at immediately switching back to the professionalism when you turn and you look at each other and you go, you know, thing one to 15 needs to be done. Go do it now. Uh, and people just leave. And it's, it's you know, I liken it to like it's almost a military style operation. So it, I really appreciate the, you know, the kind of attention to detail that you guys do behind the scenes that we're shielded from that allow you to have outcomes like that in that situation. So yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, uh, definitely. We know when to be professional. We know when to, how do they say, you know, what, uh, work like a captain, party like a pirate. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's fantastic. And Tamara, when you first started working uh, for All-Star Liveaboards, who were your colleagues and did you feel like you fit in with everybody? <laughs> well, when I first uh, started working here, I felt like I was diving in pee water because it was really warm. <laughs> and uh, my colleagues all thought I was crazy coming from <laughs> South Africa, which was the winter in South Africa. Um, I never forget. Um, and one of my colleagues was Clancy, Clancy Tamara. She... <laughs> She was, she was one of the most straight. Well, she is. She's still one of my best friends. She's one of the most straightforward human beings I've ever met. Like, if there's an elephant in the room, she'll introduce it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I'll never forget Captain Red. The first time was like, "Damn, he's too happy. How can she be so happy?" Because I was always, you know, laughing around and giggling and happy-go-lucky and happy to be at sea. And I really enjoyed the job. And and Captain uh, Red looked at Clancy apparently the one day, and she was like. It's impossible for one person to be this happy. And he's like, she's like, Captain Red, you can't be mad at someone for being too happy. <laughs> so, that, was, that was probably one of my, my biggest things is I've, I mean, you can hear my laugh. You can hear it anywhere in a room. And the people around me, they for the most part accepted it. Um, but I was definitely the loud one that came to that. Um, I started in a company that was... Um, very much um, opportunity driven so if you showed that you worked hard and you wanted to do the next thing and you put the extra effort in they allowed you to do it um, so there was awesome mentors another mentor of mine was um, Emma Bolan she's now moved over to Australia and had a kid and Sam um, Bolan as well they were very hard workers and they were diligent and they showed me that if you worked hard you would get results you know and um that's kind of what I did. I remember my first few, my first three weeks in the company, I spent most of it doing the crossings in the back deck puking because I got seasick. <laughs> that was fun. Um, and then <laughs> Captain Chris would walk over with a sandwich in his mouth going, hey, you okay? You still holding on? I said, yes, Cap. And he was like, cool. <laughs> Whenever, <laughs> it was always a lot of fun. Um, and then, yeah, so Captain Chris was a big mentor in keeping us um, as a family and checking on us and how we're doing and making sure that we joined in on the Friday nights with the crew. So, like, when it comes to, like, crew dynamics, spending time together on a Friday on your off night every now and again really helps to work well together as well as get to know people as the humans they are 
um, rather than just a work colleague. So that was an integral part. Um, within my first three weeks in the company, I had one girl turn around and tell me I'd never be a captain in this company because they don't allow females to uh, progress. And I was like, ha, challenge accepted. <laughs> Turns out they just don't allow lazy people to regress, <laughs> progress, you know. So as long as you worked hard, you were able to do it. So, yeah, um, I never found that, I don't know, like it's one of those things where if you work hard, you can get there. Um, and as long as you're willing to ask for help, and say, hey, how does this work? What does this do? And pick up a manual and read it. The company's been awesome with opportunities. I've been able to run as an engineer, a cook, a dive master on all three boats, the Morningstar, Sea Explorer, and Capital U. And I've, last year, I had the opportunity to go work on the AquaCat as well as a dive master and a house mouse, which is basically like a little stew where you run around cleaning everything and helping everyone, as well as a chefing on board with my sister at the time. Um, me and her went to that galley we cooked some food for a week together so stressful probably one of the hardest jobs I've ever done <laughs> was chefing on the aquacat but doing it with my sister is probably one of those beautiful memories um, that I'll probably cherish for the rest of my life because we had so much fun in that galley cooking um, <laughs> you know, I remember the one day I was sitting in the main salon of aquacat and Captain Ron was my captain when I was a dive master there and he, he radioed down to me over the radio yeah, he radioed down to me over the radio. I was in the main salon having a cup of coffee at 7 a.m. And he radios over Tammy Ron. I was like, yes, Cap? He's like, I can hear you through the air vent. <laughs> As I was laughing so loud. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, everyone's been very supportive. And, um, you know, as long as you're willing to ask questions and work hard, you can get there. You know, you just got to have the drive and it's not an easy job, but it's a very rewarding job for the life at sea. Absolutely. You've been with All Star since 2015, I think you said. Um, have you noticed uh, any big changes into the industry since then? Yeah. Um, so after COVID, COVID has been a very hard hit on the crew morale and company as a whole. Um, but it, with regards to keeping us running, that has been very difficult in dealing with, you know, positive COVID cases, quarantine crew, quarantine guests, make sure we can run the next charter, get everyone tested. That's been very challenging. Um, crew morale took a hit with that as well because you're no longer to socialize across the boats. You're just stuck with the same six and the same four people and you're like, ah, I just need to get off the boat. <laughs> um, so over the years, it's been yeah. an interesting <laughs> transition. Um, but we've been able to go out more now and uh, socialize a lot more now that the COVID restrictions are receding and everyone's vaccinated and we're doing the due diligence. So that's been really good. Um, one thing I must say is um, Captain Mark and Miss um, Bruce and Peggy and everyone at the company, also on liverboards, they took really great care of us. Um, they allowed the crew to stay on board, housed and fed us and paid us a basic salary like usual. Um, just to get us through the COVID times, which a lot of companies didn't do that in the liverboard industry. It was kind of unheard of. They were sending their crew home. Yeah. Um, but also our liverboards and Mark Bailey made an enormous effort to actually look after us. And that was very appreciated, especially for people like us that, you know, we have to go halfway across the world. We don't know if we'll be able to come back. They housed and fed us for many, many months. And so I guess... Why, why do you feel like he departed from that norm then, uh, Mark? 
to to do that with you guys what what was so special about all-star that they thought that it was a good idea to do that because as miss peggy says it's uh it's like the mafia once you're in you're in for life (laughs) 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 it's a family dynamic they promote the family aspect for the people that actually get along with each other they promote it and encourage it to be able to be an environment where you want to stay and you want to work and longevity in a crew on a boat promotes the best interest for the boat and the company as well because if you look after the crew, they'll look after the boat and they'll look after the guests. What you then create is this almost like forward motion of people wanting to come back and visit the old crew that used to work here, you know, because they're seeing the progress from dive master to engineer mm-hmm. to captain now. Oh, that's cool. Where are you going to take me? You know, and that's kind of dynamics when you invest so much time and effort into training people on these boats. You want to kind of keep that as much as you can. And they invested a lot back in to us and keeping us running and making sure we had a roof over heads and food on the table. Yeah, that's well, I mean, that's fantastic, really. I guess it's there's a, a big lesson there to be learned about like valuing your employees and sort of the return on investment that one gets uh, from doing that. And, you know, that support, I guess, uh, and, and exactly what you said, I, I can attest to, because I remember seeing the post when they had uh, promoted you, I guess, to, I guess it would be master of the boat, because there are several captains, as you'd mentioned, and, and several people who are trained to be captains, but but to take over as a position as a master of the boat for the Cat Palu, uh, when I saw it, I was literally like excited. It was like, hey, that's my buddy, you know, even though we spent a week together and I hadn't spoken to you since, <laughs> I was like, that's my buddy, Tammy. This is insane. And, and, you know, immediately I was just like, I have to get in touch with her and just tell her, you know, how like super proud I am of her and get her on the show. And there's, you know, there's all this emotion that comes through, uh, which I think does play a part in that dynamic, because even in the story you told before, I think all but uh, Justin, uh, I knew all those people on that boat. And, you know, I could relate to that story and I could actually see these folks genuinely trying to do the things uh, from a life saving standpoint. But that really resonates. So I guess when you know when you have that and you've moved into this position now as uh, I think the only master of a boat uh, being in the Catpaloo, uh, wh- what's that been like and how's that been received by your colleagues and your peers? Oh, the crew has been very, very supportive. Um, very supportive of me taking over the boat. And it's been a wonderful journey. It's also been terrifying. I'm not going to lie. The responsibility is keeps you up at one or two nights because you're now responsible for the entire boat and the people and how they're trained and how everything mm-hmm. runs and fixing everything and the gravity of that they do train you up for that when you become a first mate of a vessel like I was with Captain Red the Captain Blue however is a whole different beast on her own and she's giving me a run for my money but I'm enjoying the challenge and my Captain Mark said well you mm-hmm. like fixing things right <laughs> <laughs> so it's been a it's been a journey, and I mean, even every Friday when we're back in port and we have a turnover day, um, one of them, either Captain Mark or Captain Chris Lawrence, who's actually was my first mate at the time, is now a maintenance manager. Um, he's one of one of the guys that actually helped look, us look after the boats. Either one of them, every Friday, are actually in port helping us fix major projects. You know, showing us how to do it and passing that knowledge on, which has been a tremendous help in running the boats, training the crew, and. Hmm. Being a captain of this company, I'm very proud of where I started and where I've come. 
but it's also a very humbling experience because I would have never have gotten here if someone didn't have the trust in me and said, you know what, Tam? Yeah, you can do this. Try valve clearance on an engine. Try this, you know? And you learn these things by looking at manuals and doing all these amazing things um, out at sea. And if they'd never trust you, they would never let you do it. So it builds a lot of confidence as well. Um, yeah, and as far as the crew, they've been very supportive. I've had great mentors over the years teaching me how to be better dive master, better engineer, better cook. And a lot of the times it's remembering where you came from and how it feels for that new guy that rocks up with just two bags and ten bucks to his name. And being like, oh, I was there once, but don't worry, you'll be just fine. <laughs> so those are, the, those are the fun ones. And, and understanding <laughs> that it's a family aspect and you want to make, you want to train new crew and you want to make the boats better and go to sea. You know, that's, that's an important aspect of this job. Mm-hmm. So you talked about earlier, uh, one of the female, one of your female colleagues on the boat saying, you know, you'll never be captain, but <laughs> yeah. if you work hard, you can be captain. It's just lazy people don't get to be captain, which I think uh, is yeah. my new like favorite line ever. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, she just did, straight up told me no. Did, did you feel like you genuinely had to work harder? than your male colleagues to get where you are and to prove yourself or kind of what was that journey like? Uh, the journey was very interesting because I had never worked on a boat before. Um, I don't, I think the thing with working on Morningstar is Captain Ray didn't see female or male. He saw I am a human being and I work hard and I do my job meticulously. And as far as working on the boats goes, the biggest thing was when something breaks, or something doesn't work, you say something. And that builds trust with the crew rather than just leaving it broken and they know you were there last night. You were on that AC and it froze up and someone must have switched it off and you were the last person down there, so it must have been you, you know? So <laughs> you need to have that honesty and openness with each other. And I think being a female in this industry, Yes, it can be difficult, but I don't see myself as a female. I see myself as a crew member. I see myself... And I guess that's growing up as a tomboy because I had more guy friends and girlfriends anyway. Um, but I saw myself as a crew member and doing the best for the guy for the guy next to me. What can I do to make his life easier? And that's an important aspect of it. It's not, am I working as hard as the guy next to me? It's how can I make this boat run quicker, easier, and help each other out to make the trip run as efficiently and happy as possible. And the hardest thing I think I came across as a crew member was people looking at you and going, huh, you can't lift that. And you're like, yes, I can. And then you just pick up the keg and walk. <laughs> that was <a> fun. <laughs> so, so your peers are supportive, but do you ever, do you ever get any odd situations or negative feedback from, from passengers? Like oh, yeah. about <laughs> abilities or feelings or anything? Like uh, that? Yeah. You have some guests that just, you know, they don't really aren't responsive to a female crew member. <laughs> And especially when they're the captain, but as long as you're polite and you're consistent in your delivery, you generally win them over by the end of the week, you know? Um, a lot of the time they'll make jokes about my age and stuff and how young I am and that they're old enough to be my grandfather or stuff like that. I'll be like, yeah, but guess what? I'm still responsible for your butt while we're at sea, so uh, you can either listen to me or I can take you back to port, one of the two. <laughs> but for your best interest, safety's first. So, I like you know, it. You've got, to, you've got to deliver it in a kind way and also a way that makes them feel secure and in control of their environment too. Absolutely. I know um, 
with my job, I manage a dive shop and a lot of times my abilities are questioned. <laughs> and, you know, most days I like to, you know, push through and kick ass and show how cool I am. But sometimes I'm just like, oh my God, if one more person asks me if I know how to scuba dive, I'm going to lose my mind. So <laughs> how do you stay empowered and motivated in your position? I do get where you're coming from, April, when it comes to that kind of stuff where people question you. But my favorite part about that now is, okay, try it that way. And then an hour later, they'll be like, Tammy, I need help. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, so this is how we're going to do it. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, you, learn, you learn which people you can, you have to let them bump their heads a few times before they listen to you. What's your hope for the future of women in diving careers, marine careers, and I guess captains of boats and just women in this field. What is uh, What do you hope for them in the future? Uh, I hope that if you can dream it, you should probably be doing it, you know? Go for it. Why not? And there should be nothing that should ever hold you back just because of your gender. It should be because you want to do it and work hard. And you can achieve anything you set your mind to. The obstacles there in your way are there to build your character, not necessarily to stop you. So just turn to the next guy, ask for help if you need it, or, you know, just keep pushing through so that no matter what you try, at least you try with an open heart. And if you can dream it, you should be able to do it no matter what. I hope to see more people, more females in the diving industry, and there is more nowadays than there was when I started. Um, so it's definitely becoming a more commonplace thing. And one of my favorite things is to see like so many female travelers like, as they as they go across the world and traveling from like dive sands to dive sands all over the world. And that empowerment of that like, confidence to be able to do that can be difficult for a woman when you're judged just to be, oh, you look pretty, you're in a dress now. Oh. You're like, yeah, I'm a girl too. I'm not just always covered in engineering goop and diesel and grease and stuff, you know? So <laughs> I just, I hope people can see that while we we're okay to be humans and put a dress on on a Friday night. We're also strong and can fix an engine if it goes down and that kind of thing, you know. And those are important aspects to build confidence in females and that when you say something, it actually means something, you know. That's very nice. Uh, I appreciate you sharing that. Um, Tammy, where can people find you on social media? Um, I'm on Instagram under Tammy Hagerman or on Facebook as well as Tammy Hagerman. Um, and then obviously my real name is Tamlin Hagerman, which I love. It's my name my dad gave me, but I usually am only in trouble <laughs> when I say Tamlin. <laughs> um, so yeah, Tammy Hagerman on Instagram or Facebook is where you can find me, get hold of me, um, kind of progress from there. Any questions about diving, always welcome. I welcome them immediately. And Tammy or Tamlin, what keeps you diving? Oh, what what can we see next? <laughs> it's that it's that unknown. It's like jumping in the water and you don't know what you're gonna find. What credit you're gonna see? What's gonna happen? And it's peaceful. It's it's exceptionally peaceful down there. It's a walnut world, and once you sink below the surface, nothing else matters. It's just quiet. It's not you know parts that you need to fix or something you need to do someone you need to speak to it's just peaceful down there and it's you and the ocean and mother nature and every dive is different and it's beautiful no matter where you are 
That's fantastic. It's time to head to the surface, and what a fantastic dive into your life and your career it's been it's great i'm i want to get down to uh the bahamas and go diving uh, all right guys well this is my first time doing the uh inside the dive shop talk uh, but the first thing I really wanted to talk about, which is a huge thing that's going on, uh, not just in the scuba and dive industry, but I think across every single industry, uh, is supply shortages. So we are definitely facing them. Uh, I know, man, over a year ago now, uh, me and Justin in a live video <laughs> gave everybody this huge heads up saying, you know, uh, neoprene shortages are here slash coming. Uh, if you're looking for something, get it now. So, I mean, we were talking about that early 2021. Uh, mm-hmm. And we right now even have some wetsuit boots in our shop that are back ordered until 2025. So, neoprene shortages are real. <laughs> and, uh, I think, you know, we're facing them. Yeah. I, uh, I run a, you know, Part of my job is running a bike repair shop. Uh, there are bike repair parts that are back ordered. Uh, there's this huge website that you can order like thousands of parts from, and it tells you when they are due to be in. And there are dates from 2022 all the way through 2025 or so, mm-hmm. um, because the you know the, the the machine like you know everything comes from like let's just call it five factories. It's not case but like you know there's bottlenecks right and then like you've got to put stuff on ships and there's only so many ships that they only have so many ships working and like to get another ship working that was decommissioned during covid like takes years and like i mean maybe it's not years but it's like this is this whole like if you if you think of like a, a slinky you know we're just we're in the the way stretched out part of the slinky right now and it's gonna snap back together but it's gonna take so much time you know, an yeah. equal amount of time to come back together. So wild. I like on theme with this episode, talking about blackbeards and liveaboards and everything. I mean, we planned blackbeards. Uh, well, Justin, I think you actually originally booked the date. So it was like over a year ago. Um, and around, I think, September, uh, I kind of said to everybody who was on the trip, like, you know, if anybody needs a new wetsuit or literally any piece of gear for this trip like get it now get it ordered now figure out what you need uh because january a month before we go is not the time like with all the supply shortages that are happening um and for the most part people listened but there's definitely people who then you know in january uh are like oh yeah i need that uh five mil suit for the trip and they have something super specific that they want. And it's like, I can get you a five mil suit. But at this point, it's not necessarily going to be the exact thing that you want because that's just the reality of what is available at this time. You know, the suit you want is back ordered for two years. So, wow. <laughs> you uh, you know, you're going to have to fig- figure something out. I mean, we've, we even had people uh, ordering suits in October that weren't ready for February. So we had to make some substitutions. So it's just the reality uh, 
right now. Yeah, and it's and it's everywhere too, right? Like Justin's saying, like shortages in his supply chain. I know for sure uh, there's the rumors. I think that uh, Shearwater is not going to be able to make computers. That was a very sad day when I heard that. Uh, <laughs> that you know, hey, there's a chance that Shearwater is not going to be able to produce computers right now. And you know, stepping again, uh, again, stepping uh, outside of that, like I was. You know, my my welcome home from Blackbeards was, oh, by the way, you got to buy a new car and not a thing that I wanted to do at all, like for at least another five or six years, but got pigeonholed into it. And that was like an absurdly shocking piece because, you know, the last time I bought a car, it was like, I can go into the dealership and haggle with you guys because I can get a car. And now it's completely flipped on its head as if you were like in the Caribbean now, right? It reminded me of being at home when you have to go negotiate as to whether or not you are allowed to get a car. And you have no bargaining power as a, you know, as a person coming in. And I think we're going to see that in a lot of different places. And, you know, when you look at like grain supply uh, shortages that are going to happen because of supplies from Russia, like obviously we've seen cost of gas rising significantly. We're going to see other uh, sort of impacts like these, you know, when you have companies like British Petroleum pulling out uh, $25 billion of investments in, in Russia and you're seeing other major investors pulling out of their economy. It, it's gonna, it's gonna get worse before it gets better. And you know, not to suggest like let's get into a feeding frenzy stage here and, and start going to buy everything in the world and, and stockpile it. But yeah, to April's point, I think you do have to be smart as a consumer. And if there is some big ticket item that you're looking to order, well, probably being smart and doing it sooner rather than later mm-hmm. and not waiting for that last minute is, is a good idea. Cause I'll tell you, I was not happy with the selection and availability of a car to replace a car when <laughs> I had no intention of having one, but just unfortunately mm-hmm. due to some technical issues, uh, I'm stuck in that spot. And I, I mean too, like it, uh, it puts you in a spot where, you know, I hope that people know I have like their best interests in mind. Um, but when you hear the dive shop manager or, you know, the car dealership salesman or whoever is saying like, buy it now, uh, are you like, oh, you just want to make a sale? Or are you actually genuinely taking their word for like, no, I'm serious, buy a wetsuit right now because you might not have the option in a few months. So, I mean, it's... Uh, it's like, I'm not trying to get a sale out of you. I'm saying like, if you genuinely need a wetsuit or you genuinely need this, like I have your best interests in mind. So, you know, I, I think too, with small business, like a lot of our customer base, they trust us enough to know that that's what we're doing. We're not trying to, you know, get a quick sale out of anybody. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, I don't know, it's a tricky market. And like you were saying too, Amit, with the... Uh, Shearwater computers, I mean, I think that that's something that maybe nobody predicted. And uh, Shearwater, I know Peregrines have been on back order since like fall of 2021, late fall. Um, I think we're supposed to get like three of them next week. And then it's another, you know, few week wait. (laughs) And meanwhile, we have a huge waiting list of people waiting for these computers. Um, Same with the Perdix. And it's something that I think we just like didn't expect at all. Like, I don't know. I I think a Canadian company like in Vancouver and we love Shearwater and we're huge Shearwater fans. It just wasn't something we were expecting to go on back order, which I think just shows like, man, Everything. What's next? Is there is a shortage of literally everything. It's uh, it's it's like trying. To, I've been trying to buy a PlayStation Five for 
however long. <laughs> and, well, I mean, it's the same thing though. It's electronics, yeah. right? Yeah. They can't, they, there's chip shortage. And, uh, and so like all these electronics are hard to come by, like, uh, it, you know, so Shearwater gets enough to make 200 verdicts or, or peregrines or whatever. And, uh, and what are they going to do? Like, they got to send mm-hmm. three here and two here and one here to be fair. It's the same with the PlayStation. So, be like, oh, mm-hmm. 100 show up on Amazon and everybody wants ones. They're gone in two seconds. And, you know, they show up here and they show up there. You got to just gonna be flexible right now and not be pissed off at Amazon or GameStop <laughs> or Torpedo Rays. Yeah, <laughs> uh, exactly. And, you know, yeah, which is, like, I guess, that's a good question right there. Like, are you guys getting angry customers coming in the shops? Like, both of you guys are working in retail right now. Like, are you guys getting people going like, this is a bunch of BS and you need to do this for me? Like, do we have those folks? Uh, kind of, yes. Like, I mean, I think most people understand because you just see it. And you like mm-hmm. see the real estate market and you see cars. And so I think people like genuinely understand that there's like a shortage everywhere but that also doesn't take away from you know the angry person who's leaving to mexico in four days and all of a sudden can't get you know everything that was on their list um so you know is it fair to take out these supply shortages on your local dive shop or whichever you know retail store you're going to because i mean we have zero we have as much control over it really as you guys i guess the only thing we can say is like we order in advance um so as soon as and justin i'm sure remembers this like when we got wind of a neoprene shortage we ordered all the wetsuits we sold the year before plus 10 percent in advance to have Mm -hmm. a stockpile like in our basement um so we try to prepare the best we can. We kind of said like, you know what? We might not be able to buy these exact boots or this exact fin or whatever. But as soon as we see something available, we'll buy it. So you have something available rather. So it's better, you know, if you're looking for seven millimeter boots, you might not get the brand you want, but you have an option of this brand rather than no option at all. Mm-hmm. So we, we tried to do our best to navigate it. But I mean, of course, people are still going to be sad when they can't get their their favorite Yeah, I products. think people people have also had though at this point two years of being prepared for shortages. Like you know, it's uh, uh you know in the sporting goods thing outside of scuba, you know, it's like oh, you can't buy a bike, you can't buy this, you can't mm-hmm. like you you can't get any of these things. Now you can maybe not have all the models, just like you're saying. You might not That's have right. all the models you want. You might not have you know whatever feature whatever but there's there's options um mm-hmm. and as long as you're you're adjustable flexible that's uh, that's all you need to be and it's it's hard i guess from the you know storefront side because yeah we have no control over the supply shortages we're just telling people what we're hearing from our suppliers so you know uh i won't name names whatever company tells me oh yes this person's you know dry suit will be here in three weeks and then three weeks comes around hey where's this person's dry suit and then (laughs) they're like oh we promise you it will be here next week and then it's not but you know who gets mad at us or sorry who does the customer get mad at you know and i mean you can't blame them because they can't call up our supplier they go through us um so definitely like supply shortages has been 
hard in that sense. Um, but, you know, it's a fun, fun world uh, cycle yeah. we go through. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's awesome. Um, so that's my supply shortages uh, uh, behind the scenes of the dive shop. I have zero solutions. Just zero solutions. Well, we have <laughs> one solution. It's like I guess we're ordering problems now. and uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess I did have some solutions and things we're trying to do to navigate it, which is basically just ordering what we have available. Um, I know at Torpedo Rays this year, we actually have ordered a ton of wetsuits from a supplier that we don't usually order wetsuits from because they're available and mm-hmm. it's an option. Um, so you know, we're doing our best trying to yeah. have options for our customers. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's not ideal for anybody, but it's not. we're doing our best. And in some cases, I got to say, like in those very biased cases in which I operate in that world constantly, <laughs> uh, you know, one just cannot get a Shearwater computer from anybody that isn't Shearwater. So that causes me grief. Uh, so, I, you know, if you're looking for, actually, I just sent a friend of mine over there uh, today, I believe, to go and look at one, and uh, I mentioned I messaged your your dad about this, uh, Jason, and just said, "Hey, by the way, so and so is coming." So he may have shown up there and then been, you know, given the bad news. There's nothing here for you. <laughs> so <laughs> ho- hopefully, Join he got the put on that list. wait no. list, and he can uh, he can maybe get one in a few months, right? But again, that's and when Shearwater I gave him the same advice. Is so Shearwater's so damn good at making computers that people are like, "I'll wait a year for this Peregriner. I'll wait yeah. a year for this yeah. Perdix. Screw your Sunto. Like I want the <laughs> Shearwood, you know." So, anyways, but yeah, yeah. It is well. I mean, it's it's a pat. Like I mean, it, it is what it is. Like people actually like it that much. I I like it that much, and I like. It I know for sure. Too. Like, there's definitely. Uh, if you told me tomorrow, like I had to wait, I'd say, well, I guess I'm waiting then, right? And yeah, you know, very much like in his case, that was his question to me. He's like, oh well, I won't need it because I don't dive in the winter, and I, I'm not mm-hmm. going to start diving probably till like you know end of May June. And I'm like, well, mm-hmm. then you might want to go talk to them now. Yeah, or you might <laughs> yeah. not have one until like somewhere for around Christmas time, right? And so yeah. he was like, oh. Okay, so it is it is a good point in that, you know, there are certain things that we're looking at that you do really have to consider it. Like I know now, uh, I wouldn't have known this before, but if I would like to have an electric vehicle, I should probably order it now because some wait times are up to two years. Yeah, so, I was going to say, you know, yeah, it should order and it's, two years ago. Yeah. 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 And that's literally it. And that's like sight unseen, right? Like that's, you know, you, you talk to some of the big manufacturers and they're like, we can't help you, but we could get whatever car you want in two years if you're willing to put a deposit down on it now. And I'm like, oh, okay, uh, appealing as that might be. Uh, no. <laughs> so so it, it yeah. is a real thing. It is here, and it's a great discussion topic. So thanks for raising it, April. Right, do you guys make people put the down payment on a verdicts? <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> no, but uh, some people are basically some people are basically like I'll pay for it in full right now if it ensures that like you know <laughs> oh, I I I get that's... one for sure so you know mm-hmm. it's a uh, I mean it's competitive out there it's uh, you know oh yeah yeah people well like I said just... I I think I told I don't know that we need this in the show necessarily but <laughs> I was telling Justin and you guys like there are pe- car dealers in the province and the Maritimes charging more money for a used car currently than if you were to buy a new car. It's like $10,000 above the manufacturer's suggested retail price 
and they're just like, yeah, someone will buy it. It doesn't matter. It's a good time and, to be a car salesman. Oh, yeah. Well, to be a salesman in general, right? Because of the shortage. Yeah, but uh, the problem is, is everybody wants a car. <coughs> Not everyone wants dive gear yet. I'm working right. on that. Just we wait trust until the water. Just wait till sea levels rise. Then everyone <laughs> wants dive gear. Then it'll be too late. <laughs> they'll all be coming to us then. Yeah, it's, yeah. They're just behind the eight ball. You should have learned how to dive two years ago. Yeah, should have learned how to dive two years ago. Thanks, April, for bringing us inside the dive shop. It was fun. Yeah, that was fun. Well, that does it for today's episode. I want to thank Tammy for joining us again. It was an absolute pleasure. She was fun to chat with. And uh, we got a rare sneak peek at life on a liveaboard during the interview. So lots of of natural sound, uh, lots of uh, engine running and people purging tanks and doing all kinds of stuff that was uh, <laughs> that was kind of funny it's good it was a good chat it was a uh, you know made me long to be out on a dive boat yeah and it was a first for us it's the first time that we we had somebody in that situation out at sea doing an interview mm-hmm. and yeah i think we got some good sound effects out of this one too justin yeah we'll to save those him. save save those for the sound reel or yeah. you know the sound bang at a panel. all right well you've been listening to dive in the podcast i'm justin I'm April. I'm a myth. Don't forget you can support this podcast at patreon.com slash diveinpod and get some fun rewards for doing so. Visit our website, diveinpod.com, for all the links you need, episodes, merch, and you can even connect with us on social media there. This episode of Dive in the Podcast was brought to you by our sponsor, Torpedo Rays Scuba. Thanks for listening. <laughs>